All right, all right. It's episode 143 of the James Fox Higgins Show, and I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Doctor, how are you today? Good, good. Beautiful day, spring day in South Bend, Indiana. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Yeah, we've got beautiful weather, autumnal weather here in Australia, so we're, we're speaking from... Uh, Antipodean positions, virtually, and uh, right. it's great. It's great to uh, great to have you. I uh, I really enjoyed your your conversation recently with my friend Dia. Um, it was nice to uh, ah. to see you blush when she called you beautiful. <laughs> A nice touch. So for those who don't know. Get Out From Under Your Rock. Um, Dr. Jones is a, a prolific author. He's the founder of Culture Wars magazine and uh, the author of many books, uh, one of which I've been reading and enjoying and finding very uh, informative and fascinating lately, which is The Jews and Moral Subversion, which I believe is a condensed version of your book on the Jews, the revolutionary spirit of the Jews. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yes. Mm. And you know, you you speak on a lot of uh, really important topics. You you um, you have a new book just out, which, oddly enough, we chose the same title uh, for our new projects. Your new book, my new album, both called Logos Rising, and uh, we'll we will get into, I guess, what that means for each of us uh, today in our conversation. But um, with regards yeah. to the the Jews and and moral subversion, what I've been finding um, most interesting is your discussions on the um, the degeneration of um, Western architecture and art and the general aesthetic of the West that's been imposed by modernism. And I wonder if, if we could sort of kick off our conversation today by by you sharing your thoughts on the logos of the arts, because this is something that's obviously very important yes. to me. Yes. Yes. The, the, uh, the logos of the arts is called uh, mimesis, which is imitation. Mm. Uh, imitation, imitation of reality in a way that makes the reality more real. And uh, I, I've been thinking about this lately in terms of uh, how art is so fundamental to human existence because it's, it's a refined version of what we call labor as well. So wh what do I mean by art? Uh, to give you one example, uh, you know, there's a block of marble, there's Michelangelo and he's got an idea and so what he does is he imposes his idea on that block of marble. And then you have Moses, you have the, the, the sculpture of Moses. Uh, I, I think that's pretty much the whole, uh, uh, the summation of human history. It's the summation of labor. And it's also uh, the sum, uh, pretty much the summation of the role of Logos in the universe. What we're, what we're seeing here is the, the ability of the human mind uh, to discern order, to have an idea of order, and then to impose that order uh, on the on the world in a way that makes the world better. Now, that's as I said, mimesis, which means an imitation, an imitation of uh, of something, of something or other, uh, that makes that thing more valuable. Uh, beginning in the 20th century, we had a reaction against mimesis. And the artist became not so much uh, somebody who humbly stood there and tried to report back on what he saw, but he imposed his reality in a totally, uh, uh, what should I say, selfish, self-centered, egotistical way. And the man, the man who pioneered this uh, vision was uh, Picasso, <laughs> who had uh, talent, um, but he abused it. He, he was uh, a man who was uh, a kind of Nietzschean. There's a way in which uh, Michelangelo imposed his idea on nature, and there's a way in which Nietzsche uh, said that the ultimate reality is human will, and you can impose it on anything, and you can do anything you want because you're the Superman, because you impose your will on others. We, we call these people egomaniacs or uh, megalomaniacs, and we try to avoid them. Uh, but unfortunately, the 20th century is littered with, with people like this. So what happens here when you do this is uh, you break away from mimesis and it's your, you, you, you create an impoverished art world. Uh, it's after a while, uh, you kind of know what, you know, there's nothing in your mind really that is sophisticated as the reality outside your mind. 
And so uh, over this period of time, we, we went from Picasso to farther and farther away to abstract expressionism uh, to, to Mondrian. And uh, at a certain point, everybody started to lose interest. Uh, so to get to get back to the to the idea of art, I was I went to see the Rubens exhibit in uh, the Toledo Art Gallery, about five hours away. And we got there, and there were so many people, we had to wait in line. And so I went to the '50s wing, and that was abstract expressionism, which is basically it's just a pattern. And then uh, that inevitably, when everybody got sick of that, it went in the opposite direction. And that meant the 70s wing, which was hyperrealism, uh, which was basically people taking pictures and then you project the slide onto a canvas and then you kind of fill in the dots. It's like kind of like paint by numbers. <laughs> and the one was, the one was, the, so you had, you had, uh, 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 you had, with the abstract, you had essence without existence and with the 70s you had existence without essence hmm. so the one is abstract the other is looking like looking out the window that's life okay it's life but uh, there's life is not organized that that phenomenon so, in the 70s seemed to really come through into the film uh genre as well i i noticed you know, i remember yeah. feeling a, a real uh stark um and quite um unnerving and disturbing realism in the films of the 70s that i watched when i was young and i couldn't quite put my finger on what it was but films like the deer hunter and um uh what's another good example these these were taboo breaking taboos and uh, mm. we can talk about that the jews so were deliverance was another deliverance was a big one you know in terms of yeah. uh trying to break taboos yeah. wasn't it but 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 rubens rubens uh i walked in finally got into the rubens exhibit and there's the portrait of the pr uh, princess spinola doria and i thought this is perfectly organized and it, it's real at the same time and that's art Okay, mm. when you have existence and essence together. If you have the correspondence, Aquinas said, the correspondence of reality of the mind and the thing, it's the truth. And when you have that correspondence in a really powerful, stunning way, all at once in a big burst, it's called the splendor of the truth, or we call that beauty. Mm. And so I've had these experiences. That was one of the the uh, aesthetic most significant aesthetic experiences I've ever had. I had another one when I visited the Taj Mahal in India, where you walk, you have to walk or take a camel cart for a mile. You go through a huge gate and then you walk out and you suddenly perceive everything all at once. It's the most perfectly organized landscape and building you can imagine. And it all appears to you at once and you're just stunned by, by the aesthetic beauty of it. And then you walk inside and you realize it's, it's an empty tomb and you're disappointed. But that moment when you saw that, it was absolutely stunning. So, so, what so that's, a, that's a good back, segue let's into... Get, let's um, get, back to, get back to the original question is, sure. so when, when, you, when you get somebody like uh, Jackson Pollock, uh, who Time Magazine called him Jack the Dripper, because he would drip paint onto a canvas... Uh, you can't perceive it. You, you you can't perceive any order in it. You don't see any logos in it. You would not know whether you were hanging that print, that painting right side up or upside down. You wouldn't mm. know. And oftentimes they get hung upside down. So at this point, you just there think, is no I don't gravity. understand what I'm saying. <laughs> at this point, the CIA stepped in. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller started buying these paintings and putting them up on the walls of the Chase Manhattan Bank. So everybody walked in and they thought, I must be stupid because if Nelson Rockefeller is buying it, it must be art and I don't know what I'm talking about. And at that point, the dealer became more important than the artist. Mm. And at this point, you're seeing the rise of the Jewish takeover of art because it, it started with Picasso. But at this point, you don't know. You can't tell. I mean, so what the, the dealer is now involved in something you would call insider trading, which is basically if you've got a lot of money and you want to invest it in art, the dealer will say, if, well, if you buy this one, it'll be worth such and such 10 years from now, which is true because everybody's buying it. Mm. It becomes it's like stock. If, if, if everybody buys the stock, the price goes up. So it's not art. Uh, but at this point. The Jews got their foot in the door, and then it, once they get their foot in the door, they start doing their thing. 
And their thing over this period of time turned out to be, it wasn't abstract expressionism, that was just at the beginning. It turns out it's kind of, it's blasphemy and it's pornography. Uh, and it's, uh, and then it becomes a concept, a concept, a performance art, and then everybody loses interest, everybody walks out. Yeah, except perhaps the criminally insane, and, and now we've got uh, performance artists like Marina Abramovich doing, uh, you know, simulated cannibalism, possibly real cannibalism behind the scenes. Yeah, we, they're, we they're, couldn't possibly know. Right, uh, there, they, she's got something. Yeah, that that uh, was worth talking about because there's a, there's a very telling picture. She's standing next to uh, Mr. Rothschild, and <laughs> this is so she's the oligarch's idea of a great artist. Uh, and uh, she must be, uh, so she's now got something that's virtual, so you have to put the glasses on. But uh, this this was what happens when Jews take over art. They define it as what they can do, and what they can do uh, is not art. Sorry, it's not art. So when uh, Marina sits there with her boyfriend and stares at him for seven hours, it's not art. Sorry, it's it's some a transgressive act that's supposed to make us feel stupid. And it's supposed to make her feel superior because somebody is paying her to do that, but it's not art. And, and there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of links in there. You know, going back to uh, Michelangelo, you were you were saying that um, you know art is mimesis, so it's the imitation of something, and uh, and obviously the best thing that we can imitate is the Lord, is is Jesus Christ, is God, is is. And, and the way that we can do that is to see the logos and the order in creation itself, to see the the majesty and the beauty and the symmetry and the amazing mathematics available to us in nature. Right. And the best of right. art, in my estimation, is where we have imitated God's order and attempted to bring it into our own creation. Yes, but that requires a lot of skill. Hmm. And, and so the, the group of people, so I've already talked about the Jews if you let the Jews take over the art world, you'll get this uh, performance art, pornography, blasphemy, cr uh, cr crucifixes submerged in urine, stuff like that. But the Italians have a tradition. I mean, they have a real tradition of art. And if you look at somebody like Titian, okay, we're talking about religious art now in the uh, late Middle Ages, the Renaissance. And there's a, a standard, one of the standard images is noli me tangere, don't touch me. And um, I was just uh, looking at this picture, famous picture, and there is the picture of Jesus Christ. You know, the story is familiar. It's uh, the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday morning, and uh, Mary Magdalene goes and see, she thinks it's the gardener. It turns out to be Jesus Christ himself, risen from the dead. And uh, he's got the perfect body now, but the perfect body still has wounds. Uh, uh, as the symbol of his suffering uh, for our sins. And so there's a picture there. And this picture, so I realized, actually it was Michael Waldstein who gave a, a, a lecture on it at Notre Dame during the conference in November, where he talked about the psychological sophistication of what's going on here. So you have the gaze. Um, she's, reaching, she's reaching towards Christ's genitals. That's what she's doing because this is a kind of normal reaction between a man and a woman. There, there's this, always gonna be this dynamic of seeking union with the beloved, which means sexual union. Usually that's what it means in this life. And people seek that, but then she's looking at the wound. Hmm. And so the, the psychological dynamic uh, here is we know this is, we have this desire for union that is usually sexual union, but uh, Christ is raising that to a higher level. And the whole idea of Christianity is basically to take that basic drive and not to deny it, but to sublimate it. Uh, what do we mean by sublimate? I mean, subordinate it to Logos, hmm. subordinate it to reason. And the way we do that is through marriage. Yes. And marriage then becomes the successful, the successful channeling of that sexual urge uh, into a rational form that then allows it to be fruitful. So children come out of that and society comes out of that. And, and that makes uh, what most people would call a successful life. And that, from that that's little... the successful life that most people are called to. 
from that little seed of Logos, we now have a whole structure for sexual morality in society, which is where the, the modern arts seem to be attacking most fervently, the destruction of that structure for sexual morality. Right. So, what, what, so what is Jack the Dripper telling us? There is no Logos. Hmm. And if there's, if there's no Logos, then you don't have to discipline your passions. You can do whatever you want. And that is precisely the message that Rockefeller was trying to say by buying that, uh, buying that, uh, buying up all those paintings. So it, this, it, it, we, this, there's, were stories about it when the false story came out about the CIA getting involved in promoting abstract expressionism. This was to show that the United States was superior to the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union had socialist realism. And uh, to be honest with you, the Soviet Union has created some of the greatest statues, I think, in European history. Uh, we, we may not like Lenin, he was a monster, but that statue of Lenin, when you're coming into St. Petersburg, is absolutely stunning piece of sculpture. So they did do some good things with, with socialist realism, but the United States was going to say, no, no, we, we have freedom here. You can do whatever you want here. You can drip paint on a canvas and people will pay you lots of money for it. Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. You can do what the rich and the powerful want. And this is the whole point of sexual liberation. The book I wrote about uh, libido dominandi, this manipulation of sexual passion to give you the illusion of freedom, uh, but the reality of control. And that's that's what what is going on here during this period of time. This is the era of of Kinsey. Uh, Rockefellers were promoting Kinsey because Kinsey was a way of controlling large numbers of people. It's in my book, Libido Dominandi. I, I found it at the Rockefeller archives hmm. when I did research there. So that that's so that's the, the illusion and the reality. This is what is the 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 art. Art is more real than reality. Hmm. That's why it's art. That's why it's art. I mean, you know, you can look out the window, you can look out the window and you know, it's real, but it's not art. Hmm. And you can doodle, you can write little squares and triangles and it's, 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 uh, it's organized, uh, but it's not real. Or, but hmm. so, so what is, so you, this is, this is a copy of uh, Logos Rising. I'm plugging, shamelessly plugging this book here, but I wanted to Do talk it. about the cover. Mm. The cover, and I, this is my, my grandson, Tim, did the cover. It looks and a bit impressionist. It, it does have an impressionist feel to it. Mm. And well, at least, it's at least got, the water. So there's, there's a little bit of symbolism here. This is, there's a church there, and there's a skyscraper here, and this is the city of God and the city of man. That's the symbolism. Mm. Yes. But I remember, I remember, I'm, what, what, what did I have in mind here? What did I have? Because I told him what to do. <laughs> he didn't design it. I designed it. He executed it, but I designed it. What was I talking about? Well, that's a river. And there's a river that flows through South Bend, Indiana, called the St. Joseph River. And I rode on it today. Great day to row. No wind. It was perfect. Now, I have had basically 40 years of experience of this river at all times of day, all, all the seasons of the year. And I just had all of these images in mind. So in the summer, to avoid the heat, I'll row at, at six o'clock in the morning at sunrise. And at sunrise, you can see that. You can see the sun come up over the river. Okay. I walk in the winter because I can't do anything else. And you walk along the river and you see the, the clouds. You see the lights, like those yellow lights when they go whole. Now, all, all of these experiences have been put together in an organized fashion. Hmm. That's what I'm saying. I saw this at one point. I saw that at one point. I saw those clouds at one point. And it's all put together in some type of organized fashion. And that's what art is. Hmm. That's, why we, that's why we have art. You can kind of distill this experience. So you can distill it with other things as well, like, like Shylock is a character in a play. He never lived, but he's hmm. in many ways... He's more real than all the Jews you've met. Because <laughs> he's an archetype. He's like a, he's like a synthesis of all of the Jews that you've ever talked to. And that's why it's so powerful. Mm. That's why art is so significant. Because the mind can synthesize things 
that you've seen, it, you know, you saw all of those pieces at various points over 40 years of walking along the river, rowing on the river, you know, sitting at the river and so on and so forth. And time that here you can put it all together in some type of organized fashion that you would call beauty. Now, the music uh, medium, which is, which is my medium, um, you know, has really followed a, a similar path to the visual arts that we've been talking about thus far. Um, where you know popular, what's now popular music? I'm sure there's always been a uh, you know a, a genre of plebeian uh, entertainment music compared to the high art aspects of music. But what's now popular music and commercialized music and the huge you know multi-billion-dollar industry, which is coming out of Hollywood as well, um, is also you know very much on track to take the most um, basic. Um, you know, sort of primitive tribal um, instincts of man and just, you know, pump them right up and get them, you know, excited right. about more and more sexual degeneracy to the point where right. I've had to really walk away from um, a lot of my uh, involvement in the music industry and in um, in listening to music. And now I, I can only sort of stomach classical music these days because I can hear the, the darkness and the degeneracy and what's being promoted to us. And you have to really dig to find high-quality, artful, logos-rich music that's promoting a positive message for society. So can you talk about how, in your perception, because you're a musician as well, I've heard, I've heard some of your songs, in fact, which I, I've really enjoyed. I love your uh, Neocon song, uh, song in particular. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, how music is, has been used um, as a propaganda tool to aid along this um, degeneracy and and why on the sort of political um, front is this happening in the arts? How does it serve the people who are pushing this artistic degeneracy? Yeah, well, uh, we, we uh, that's, that's a big a, a big uh, slice to talk about. Mm. But uh, we're talking about if you're talking about mu- music, you're talking about uh, motions of the soul sound uh, cr- affecting motions of the soul and uh, aristotle talked about it w- in his poetics I-, I never really understood the poetics fully until i realized he was talking about music and that whole mo- motion of the soul and and at, at the time of the greeks they realized that certain modes had certain effects on you uh, and you found it hard to resist you know and some modes were too passionate and some were some modes would make you want to kiss your girlfriend and some would make you want to go off to war. And mm-hmm. so they Plato decided you have to regulate these things if you want an ordered society. And if you didn't, you'd have disordered music being produced by disordered souls. And then you'd have revolution, which is what we got. Or you could have uh, Euripides talking about the Bacchae, which is uh, the Dionysian god uh, Bacchae. Uh, Dionysus arrives and corrupts the women, gets them off dancing naked on the mountainside. And the vehicle for this is wine and uh, song and song, wine and, and song. Actually, <laughs> wine, wine, women, and song. So they they understood the Greeks understood the power of music and how it mm. could go directly to the soul. And so we had uh, uh, basically uh, in European culture we had more and more sophisticated forms of music, a real cultural development culminating, I think, in the 18th century was some of the greatest music that was ever made. And at that point, something happened called the French Revolution. And you can see it, you can hear it in Beethoven. Beethoven was affected by, Beethoven was an exact contemporary of Hegel. And both of these men were affected directly by the French Revolution. Uh, it took place when they were uh, teenagers, 19 years old both of them 19 years old, and both of them were affected by it. And you can see, uh, uh, you know, Beethoven starting off with the 18th century and then getting involved in revolution, and it's getting wilder and wilder, and then suddenly he makes it back. And everybody heaves a sigh of relief. He made it back. It's okay. Hmm. You know, or or like the classic instance being the the Sixth Symphony, Mm, which is basically a walk in the the park. And suddenly a thunderstorm comes up. Mm. And this is what this is what music is. It's I've I've often said it's like rowing. You know, you get in the boat, you start head up to Mishawaka upstream, 
And then suddenly the thunderstorm rolls in and you're out there in the middle and the lightning's coming down and the thunder and the rain and you think, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And finally I make it back to the dock and I'm still alive. And you just heave the sigh of relief. Well, that's what music is. I mean, really sophisticated music is basically you have this experience. It's catharsis. It's pity, pity and fear. And you, your emotions are aroused and then it's resolved and you heave a sigh of relief. It, mm. it's, it's literally what happens in the sixth symphony because there's a thunderstorm in the sixth symphony yeah or or, or this the storm at sea that's in uh, uh tchaikovsky's uh, swan lake powerful piece of music so it's just one powerful piece of music after another but suddenly the idea of revolution starts insinuating itself and you get a guy like wagner and you realize he left and he never came back he never found his way back to that that note that uh, you started off on. There's no resolution. I'm talking about Tristan and Isolde, uh, which is his basically attempt at sexual revolution in Germany at that period of time. He also wrote the 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 Desreingold, uh, which is the most brilliant explication of capitalism ever created. It's an absolutely brilliant piece, a brilliant analysis of what happened in Germany uh, with the emancipation of the Jews and the turning gold into usury and all this other, it's brilliant. But with, with, uh, with uh, the other part of it, with Tristan, we got away from that, the chromatics, the diatonic scale, we got into this chromatic scale and it became like you just sailed off and you never came back again. And Schoenberg uh, was a, a Jew who had become a Christian at this point. He was influenced by it. Verklärte Nacht is a smeared version of Tristan, a smeary version of Tristan. And it was his involvement with, uh, he got involved in uh, sexual, he was living the, the, the life of Bohemia, Bohemia in Vienna. And his wife got involved in sexual liberation, had an affair with an artist. The artist committed suicide and, and this something cracked inside of Schoenberg. He stopped being a Christian. He reverted to being a Jew. And now he was going to use music to punish this Christian culture that got his wife to cheat on him. And so the first step was atonal music. This is all, by the way, it's all in my book, Dionysus Rising, if you want to read the... Uh, another the, the re another the one on the version. list. You've, you've written far too many books for me to uh, keep up, Dr. Jones. <laughs> well, uh, you have a... You, you, <laughs> what can I say? You've got a lot spare time now since you're all locked inside. Read the books. But anyway, uh, so, so you have this Jewish... Again, this Jewish animosity coming up, this Jewish hatred of the great achievements of the West because uh, the West at this point is behave, betraying its own legacy, which is what Wagner did as a revolutionary. That's what revolutionaries do. And so Her Schoenberg sets off to avenge himself on the Western music and he comes up with 12-tone music, which is mm. an abomination. It's not music. <laughs> and, he did, and he didn't invent it anyway. Mm. He, he stole it from Josef Matthias Hauer. Oh, I tell that story in the book. You can read well, it in there. It seems that we're um, in, in that period of Western history where we moved from the diatonic to the chromatic. Uh, in modern music now, we've moved from um, the, the pentatonic, you know, the five-note scale of um, the 1950s pop blues kind of, um, you know, basic pop music. Now we've moved into this sort of um, uh, monotone music where it's all about the beat and and uh, a atonal melody. Now it's all rap and beat. Right. No melody. It's not. Yeah. It's not new. There's no melody. Mm. Melody is the soul. Is the soul of music. Melody is the soul. You know the 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 beat is the uh, is the uh, id, and the melody is the uh, is the uh, ego mm. is, uh, is the intelligence ethos pathos and uh, the rhythm harmony is what brings them together in mm. the middle. So if you basically uh, walked away from music, you walked away. But, but the, the big step here uh, that take, took you in that direction was basically jazz. So the jazz bands, he, uh, uh, George Antal said, if we had to hear one more piece by Schoenberg, we all would have committed suicide. <laughs> so it was 
with great relief that we welcomed the first Negro jazz band to Paris in 1919. And suddenly Dionysian music took off in a completely different direction, emphasizing rhythm, uh, which is not emphasized at all in Tristan and Isolde. I guarantee you that. It's a completely different idea. Mm. And that led to the pop music that we have today, you know, mm. rock and roll and so on and so forth. Yeah. But the point, I mean, listening to your piece there, I was thinking, this is the root of all of our music is ethnic music. Mm. It's basically, we speak a language. This is a Ray Fun Williams wrote a thing called a book called National Music, which was a series of lectures he gave at Bryn Mawr in the 1930s. And he said, all music is ethnic music. It's just that some people are much more sophisticated. So if you bumped into Bach on the street, you would say, Entschuldigung because he speaks German and he would say, uh, you know, okay, kind problem because we speak German. Well, he's, his music is German too, hmm. because his music is a combination of hymns he's heard and songs that they sang in the local pub and so on and so forth. But he took that to such a high level that it, it, only a genius could do that. But the point I'm trying to make here is if you're talking about Bach as the top of the mountain, he, you're talking about a mountain too. And that mountain is made up of folk music. And so what you have, I mean, there was obvious, obvious Irish influence in that piece you did. It, <laughs> yes, it, yes. It, 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 it reminded me of Carry Me Back to Carlo or whatever. Uh, I think that was the tune. But what, what's the difference between the I'm half Irish and I'm half German. So I've pondered this. What's the difference between the Irish and the Germans? The Irish have a huge repertoire of folk music, but they lived under the heel of the British who tried to destroy their culture. There was a time in Irish history when the Irish were not allowed to own musical instruments, if you can imagine that. And they carried that musical tradition uh, forward by humming. And so I, what happened here, uh, the reason you're, you heard that song that I sang is uh, every, there was a kind of renaissance of Irish music here in South Bend around the end of the 1990s, the beginning of the of the 2000s, uh, where suddenly, uh, you know, I, I had played in a rock band in, in Germany. I got tired of that kind of music. And then I listened to classical music for about 20 years. And I got tired of listening to other people play music. I thought, <laughs> I'll play my own and I'll, I'll write my own lyrics. Uh, and I'll try and say something that nobody else has said. And that led to that, you know, doing that, you know. Everyone go and look up the is, Neocon song by Dr. E. Michael Jones. It's a, it's a great hoot. Yeah, I sang that to a bunch of lumberjacks in Wisconsin. And they enjoyed it. With some success. <laughs> they enjoyed it. Yeah, we had a good time. We had a good time. Yeah, so, so I, mean, I, so I like, I like this idea of the – sorry, go on. I'm saying that uh, we're always, in a sense, trying to get back to, to our roots, and the roots are ethnic music. We have mm. all of these ethnic melodies, especially if you're Irish or German, they're all going around in your mind. Yeah. And suddenly, you, if you have some talent, you can create something new. Now, the difference between, as I was going to say, the difference between I, Ireland and Germany is the Irish are never allowed to have a high musical culture. The mm. British prohibited it. Mm. There was a time when they had to say mass in fields. And so this led to this silent mass and the, the Irish kind of devotion. It never took place in Germany. That's why I have multiple personality disorder. They have two completely <laughs> different attitudes, two completely different experiences that got brought together in the United States. Mm, uh, yes. But the principle is the same. They, they, you had a guy like Turlow O'Carrollan who wrote beautiful, uh, beautiful melodies, beautiful pieces, but he, he just, there was no mountain there. You know, mm. he was, the, he was, he had to, he had to stand on the street level. Whereas Bach could could stand on a mountain because he had all of that German sophisticated German musical tradition behind him that he could bring to some type of uh, uh, fruition in a way that no one had ever done before. That's the, the this, this question German of uh, you know music being uh, ultimately ethnic. Um, I I think you're, you're spot on with that and. It's interesting for me, I, I've come to, I, I really didn't appreciate classical music, um, you know, especially German classical music was nothing to me when I was young. My grandfather listened to it quite a lot and he was a, you know, a, a devout proponent of Logos, let's say that. Um, and that influence was there. Um, but he was an Irishman 
Um, and, f- you know, I, I'm by and large Irish ethnically. I'm the first of my people to be born in Australia. And, um, you know, for me, Irish folk music, um, you know, like the type that I'm emulating there in my own mimesis with the song you heard at the start, um, for me, that has always um, really stirred my soul much more right. than the high um, German classical music, even though I've really right. learned to appreciate and I sit there and I listen to something like Beethoven's Sixth Symphony and I'm just awestruck at its beauty, at its logos, at, at the complexity of it, um, at the mood that the, the journey he's able, Beethoven's able to take me through. The in that emotions piece. that he can evoke mm. by that music, it's, it's stunning. It is stunning. But it's, but, but it's, for me, it's, it's not, not as not visceral. You. It's not as visceral as the Irish folk songs, which, which don't take you on as nearly as much of a journey. It's a, sort of one emotional right. state through a song, but it moves me so much more. Right. I, look, I had the same feeling, uh, but slightly different. So we would go to the pub and we'd sit there and we'd play Irish dance tunes and we'd play a million Irish dance tunes, you know, one after another. No one's dancing because people don't know how to dance in South Bend. Uh, most people don't. <laughs> and we're playing one after the other. And then at a certain point, I just thought, I feel a song coming on. And then I, I'd start to sing. And it turns out I didn't usually it would be a German melody. I, I don't know. I just don't know why. I mean, the, mm. the, uh, I just don't know why I just tended to grab when it was singing, I tended to gravitate toward the German, the German mm. side. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I would, I would uh, posit the theory that it's uh, to some degree, it's in our genes. It's in our material makeup. You know, we are who we are. And this is, I guess, I don't really want to go down the political path too much today, but this is why I've come to nationalism as being a proper logos driven, um, political right. perspective because we are who we are. And this is why, right. um, you know, the America First movement um, has uh, struck me and I think a lot of the rest of the world seeing it um, re-emerge, particularly in these young guys who've taken you on as their um, internet dad. And uh, <laughs> the, um, the you know, returning to the idea that America is not just anyone who shows up. America is actually the posterity of the founders of America, America is a is a race essentially, and there are immigrants who have come and integrated into that that pool of people. But the races are real, the ethnicities are real, and our culture is not just um, mimetic; it's also genetic to some degree. What, what do you think of that idea? Yeah. Well, America is an idea, you know. Uh, but in the beginning, it was all one group of people. Basically, mm. it was English Protestants of some sort or other. Uh, and gradually other groups started to show up and the Catholics showed up in the middle of the 19th century. The Germans and the Irish pretty much showed up at the same time. Uh, the, the Irish showed up because of the um, potato famine and the Germans showed up largely because of the revolution of 1848. So they both took place at the same time. There was a, I, I wrote uh, a chapter in Baron Metal on the Irish potato famine. And there's always this image that struck me of the Irish showing up in Glozeal in the St. Lawrence River, and they're they're naked. Okay, they've got absolutely nothing, and they're sick and they're starving, and they crawl out onto the dock there, and it's winter. You know, it's freezing cold, and some of the people help them, give them clothing, something like that. And at the same time, the Germans go sailing by, and they're all well dressed and they're well fed, and they're all singing songs as they go sailing by. I mean, these were the two experiences of, of my my heritage you know my because i'm german and irish and i never to be honest with you I've, i get into trouble when i say this but i never felt that i was white i i, I we grew up in ethnic neighborhoods in philadelphia and you if know? you're half if you're half time, irish everybody knows that the the irish are the blacks of europe right i know we've i watched that movie <laughs> it was called the commitments wasn't it that's right yeah but yeah. Uh, it, it was uh, so it was uh, it, it was, I, I ran into, I, I got into trouble because I, I the, there were people, I met these white boys from the South and I kept saying, well, yeah, I understand what you're saying because it was a big deal for you because there was such a large black population, you're picking cotton and stuff like that. But that wasn't the experience of Philadelphia or Chicago or those places. And it became our experience after World War II when the social engineers 
used migration. They weaponized migration before anybody knew you could weaponize it and basically destroyed those Irish ethnic neighborhoods, the German ethnic neighborhoods, the Italians, the Poles, and turned them all into white boys in the suburbs. So that, that was just part of my experience. And, and it, it's, it, it's difficult to explain to people because it's not obvious what you are hmm. when your parents come from two different, you know, I, I can speak, I can speak German, uh, but my, my mother was a hundred percent German and she couldn't speak a word <laughs> because she had lost that. Yeah. So what was she, did she lose her identity? Uh, and so I'm half Irish and half German. Well, what identity do I have? Well, I, the identity I have is I'm a Catholic. That's the yeah. triple melting pot. That's the store. That's the best description of ethnicity in the United States that I've come across. Now I said this, in a talk, uh, and the, the white boys got upset, you know, because the white boys, uh, you know, they have a different explanation. I was going to debate Jared Taylor in Zagreb that got called off because of the COVID virus, but it's it's an issue. I keep trying, I keep trying to explain it, and I keep bumping into people who either don't understand it or don't want to understand it. Mm. But I still think it's the best explanation of ethnicity in America. Australia is going to be similar, you know. You move there. Your, your, your grandfather stole Trevelyan's corn. So the young might see the morn and now the prison no, I, ships I, I, lies I'm, waiting I'm from at a, the bay. I'm from a noble line, actually, <laughs> and, and soldiers. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm a first-generation Australian. So, uh, yeah, I don't – I've come to actually um, – though I, I, love, uh, I love this country and everything it's um, offered me, I've come to begin to um, – identify less and less with what it is to be Australian and feel that I don't I don't really have a rightful claim to Australian identity in the same way that the descendants of those founders who were either you know British colonists or Irish prisoners um, I don't feel that I have as much of a claim to the Australian identity as they do um, and it's been an interesting journey well, what for is me the, because, what is what is the Australian identity well what is it I think it's uh and, and maybe this is this is where we may disagree, but I think it's um, the um, descendants of the founders. The, they've become a race essentially who um, arrived here, you know, two hundred years ago, and have had children. And, and there have been many waves of immigrants, and you know, countless waves in in recent years. Um, but I don't think that you can just show up in a country and become. Uh, I don't think you can just arrive in America and become American. I think it takes time to uh, fully integrate and become part of that racial group well the triple melting pot says it takes the triple melting pot says it takes three generations to become an american mm, well well so it by and that, you, by that you role, don't, you, I'm, I'm not australian because <laughs> i'm the first generation here right right you would not be you would be an immigrant mm. that's what you would be and that's yeah. what my grandfather was my grandfather came from cork uh in 1900 and uh uh he was an Irishman. He was an Irishman living in America. Hmm. And then his son married a German. And then uh, I was born and I'm an American. There's no question about it. I'm an American. Uh, but I'm a, you, you, there's no such thing as a generic American. That's what I'm trying to say yes. here. Yeah, understood. That even eth ethnicity still perdures. It, it perdures as religion now. Hmm. Because yep. you don't speak the language. My mother, my mother didn't speak German. My mother, when, when I talked, when I, my grandfather hardly spoke German. Now, now, the Germans were here longer. So he was, it was his father, uh, his father, his grandfather. No, his father who came here uh, as, as an immigrant. So he was removed from it. Uh, I remember I had an experience when, you know, when I first started studying German in high school, I came home and I said, say something in German, Grandpa. And he said, which is a Swabian dialect. And I couldn't understand a word that he said. Would be Hochdeutsch. And that would be last night. I thought it was my last, which is what his aunt used to say when she had a bad night. <laughs> but I mean, this, this is lost on him. He, he lost the language. If you lose the language, you're not a German anymore. You're not. You know, you're an American now because you grew up speaking English. You, you are the language. Your identity comes from your mother. 
and it's called die Muttersprache. It's the language you learn from your mother is what gives you your identity. Mm. That's what your identity is, because Logos is the source. Logos is the source of your being, and it's also the source of your connection with reality. Mm, That's why it's important. That's why the language is important. So if you go to, well, I've been in Tanzania, I've been in Kenya, I've been uh, East, East Africa, and if you go to Tanzania, there are 76 different ethnic groups there. And they all look exactly the same from my point of view. They all have black skin and black curly hair and thick noses and thick lips and so on and so forth. But they're all different ethnic groups because they speak different languages. Hmm. That's the criterion. That's the criterion of identity, the criterion of ethnicity. Now, obviously, they live in a certain place. And if you live in a certain place, you eat a certain kind of food, you have certain kind of customs, and all that is true. And that's all part of your identity. But the basis is your language. And that's why Logos is important. Hmm. I, 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 would, um, I would agree that lo uh, language is, is, uh, is probably the most foundational aspect of identity, but I don't know that it's the exclusive one. You know, would you, would you say that this idea of uh, ethnicity being... Um, best categorized as religious affiliation as it is in the United States and Australia now, because we're, we're very, we're speaking from the new world, you know, as, as European people of European heritage, we're, we're in the new right. world and America and Australia are both very young countries and very, very mixed up. And I, I guess all of Europe is very mixed up now as well. But I would argue that there are people in Ireland who are Irish through and through their entire history is in Ireland, their genetic makeup, they speak the Irish language and they have absolutely a greater claim to Irish identity than perhaps me because I don't speak the Irish language and I wasn't born there, although I'm genetically almost completely Irish. And, um, right, right. and they have a, a greater um, claim to Irish identity than maybe a second-generation Asian who's migrated to Ireland, grown up there, has the gorgeous accent, has, speaks the language, but is not genetically at all related to the people of Ireland. Right, right. That is a that is a very complicated issue mm, about Ireland is. and the, 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 the collapse of Gaelic, the collapse of the Irish language has had uh, severe consequences. I have a friend, Terry O'Reardon, who teaches the Irish language in Montana, and he could talk uh, long and eloquently about that, that, that mm. issue. Okay, that the, the, the English, the English language brings with it certain types of thought patterns and certain types of uh, philosoph philosophical concepts and so on and so forth. There's no question about it. And it had an effect on Ireland. It's been imposed but, on us but, as a people. Do you, know, do you know the story about the Chinaman? Do you know the story about the Chinaman? Chinaman is he's working in some sweat factory in Wuhan or something like that. And he's sick to death of the factory life. He's going to go someplace else, spins the globe, puts his finger down, it lands on Ireland. So the Chinese Chinaman goes to the encyclopedia and what language do they speak there? They speak Gaelic. They speak Irish there. So he learns Irish and then he flies to Dublin, gets off the plane and starts talking Irish and nobody understands him. <laughs> Walks through Dublin. He's spent the whole day. He's completely exhausted. Can't find anybody to talk to. So he walks into a pub and he's sitting there at the pub and he turns and it turns out the guy sitting next to him can speak Irish and they're chattering away and it's, he's happy. The other guy's happy. He's amazed that a Chinaman can speak this way. And then the bartender looks at them after about 15 minutes. He turns, yells in the back to the cook. He says, Joe, Patty's speaking Chinese. <laughs> It's a, I like it. It's a, it's a good story, but it, to me, it actually illustrates um, the weakness of the argument that ident uh, that language is central to identity, because uh, it, by that standard, and I know it's, it's an allegory and a joke, but by that standard, the Chinaman is more Irish than the, than the bartender or the cook who don't speak their own language. And this let's, is where. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Let's put it this way. I am my mother, my deceased mother. Uh, she died, it was 100 years old when she died, as, is genetically 100% German. I would say I am 50% German, but I would say I am more German than my mother because I speak German. Is mm. that so hard to understand? My mother could could go over to Germany and all the Germans speak English. But I mean, back then when I showed up, there were most, a lot of people didn't speak 
the la didn't speak English, and I know I can get along, get along over there. I I fit in like I don't want to exaggerate here, but it was like I was like a hand in a glove. I felt more at home in Germany than I did in Philadelphia, to be perfectly yes. honest with you, yeah. because I, it was so familiar to me. I I, I said I felt I I've been here before. It was the food. It was everything. It was more familiar to me. But I had to learn the language, and mm. I did learn the language. And I think, and at a certain point, I they were Catholic. I came back to the Catholic faith when I was there. I spoke the language. They they accepted me, and the, the, so the, at a certain point, the the uh, I was a teaching at a gymnasium, and the principal came up to me and said, "Why don't you become a German?" I mean, I did. Like, like, I, I've, I've talked legally. about this before. Did he mean, did, did he mean I legally? Did become a German. Yeah. He meant, he meant basically, I was teaching, I was getting paid according to a certain scale. You can become a civil servant. It's called Beamter. I could have become, if I became a German citizen, I could have become a Beamter, which means I would have been paid about twice as much as what I was being paid. I would have lifetime security and so on and blah, 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 the whole thing. And he suggested that I do that. And for some stupid reason, I came back to America uh, because I, I felt that I was an American in mm. some sense. I never felt more like an American than when I was in Germany. Uh, uh, and when I came back, uh, it was just one of those moments mm. where I suddenly and then, that's when I decided I'm going to get a Ph.D. in American literature. That's why I came back, because mm. I wanted to figure out what it meant to be an American. And and this is this is an interesting uh, conundrum that many of us in the West in the West face today is because we we do come from mixed heritage we come from different worlds and there are different sort of forces pulling at us and our identity that you felt more German than your mother in Germany because you spoke the language and you were totally accepted and encouraged to become a German citizen but something about your place of birth and the culture that you grew up in was pulling you home and you identified more with with being American so. You know, I, I think at the end... I could have become a German. I could have become mm. a German. Now, I'll tell you, I'll tell you honestly, if I had become a German, I would not have written this book. Because I, in order to write this book, I had to write the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, and I could not have written that book over there. No, I could not true. have written that yeah, book you'd, over there. You'd, you'd be writing it from a prison cell. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a big issue in Germany. It's one of the big sadnesses I had in my life is basically to, an inability to talk to a German the way I'm talking to you. Mm. I mean, here we are at opposite ends of the world and we're both thinking along the same lines. We're talking about Logos. We both use the word Logos. Mm. I mean, this is incredible in a way. And and uh, you're a lot farther away from than Germany, but I, I just can't talk to the Germans. I cannot do this type of thing in Germany. It's impossible. Mm. Yes. Yeah. That's part of the problem. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's funny too because you're an American, um, but you're speaking a language uh, that came from the English. I'm an Irishman, but I'm speaking a language that came from the English, and the word logos is is Greek. So we're a, we're a real mixed bag uh, in Europe, and I think uh, you know the nationalist movement of of Europeans seems to be recognizing that we're so um, we're so muddled up now that trying to separate ourselves along strict ethnic lines is um, is a lost cause and more identifying with Western civilization, Western culture, and, you know, the foundations of that, which are um, largely Greco-Roman legal and philosophical tradition and Christianity um, as the religion. That seems to be the way um, we can identify ourselves collectively in spite of those it's not, minor it's differences. Not a, it's, it's not an either-or choice. Hmm. It shouldn't be. I've I've wrote a book called Ethnos Needs Logos, hmm. and and it's about me spending a week in Guadalajara with David Duke trying to convince him to become a Catholic, but it's also about uh, Mexico. What does ethnicity mean in Mexico? It's also about the Jesuits in Paraguay. What did the Jesuits do? They preserved they preserved the Guarani as a nation because the Guarani would have just died if the Jesuits hadn't come over and written their grammar and their dictionary for them. Yeah. This is what we, we have to have that sense of, of, of transcendence and imminence at the same time. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, I do, yeah. yes, I'm a, I'm, I, I live, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm half Irish and half German, but that means that I can also uh, read Greek and study Greek and write mm. a book on philosophy. Because that, that was part of the American experience. 
that was part. I, we've we've forgotten this. We are so sick of ugly Americans. I'm sick of ugly Americans. Of these these people like Mike Pompeo, you know, this kind of crass, a guy who just just a crude guy who brags about lying and throws his weight around and 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 kisses butt when it comes to these Israelis. It's disgusting. It's just disgusting. But there was a time when there was a, a an American was someone who was could have been a cultured person. Uh, this is what I grew up thinking. Go, go to the like. Let's talk about architecture. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to warn you. We, we're approaching the hour, and uh, you, you yeah, did warn I, me I that if we go past an hour, you might say something that gives the ADL fodder. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I, we'll, we we will reserve architecture for another time. I, I would but love to. Been, I, been, I would love to talk about it with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I think it's a miracle. This is this is the fruit of the American empire. It was a mm. wicked empire. It's now going to end. But the fact that we all learned English and we can have conversations in English on the internet all over the world is the reason I wrote this book, because that's what this book is about. It's about speech. It's about the ability to speak to each other on a deeper level. Mm. And what we have in common, because we're reaching the point where the entire world is going to have some type of common culture. Yes, yeah, that seems to be seems to be the case, and may, may it be a good one with logos and Christ at its center. Uh, before we wrap it up, Dr. Jones, uh, we've got a few super chats that I will read out because I did promise my audience that I would do that. Okay. Um, the Kurgan, who I believe you've met, um, who uh, is a is a an evil evil man. He uh, he's spoiling for a biff with you on canonical law, and he uh, he actually emailed me a bunch of questions he wanted me to ask, but I had no intention of uh, having a. a dogma debate with you it's not my field by any stretch but he has asked in his super chat um why doesn't he respect the code of 1917 and thus consider the promoters of the vatican II heresies heretics who vacated their office as per canon 188 part four do with that uh, as you will <laughs> <laughs> the kurgan has Who very strong he he did this he did put ridiculous. in he did put in four pounds ninety nine so if you can say a few more words God in bless him God <laughs> bless him for putting that money in the till in the tip jar good thanks how Kurgan I, how, okay go ahead let's next question <laughs> all right yeah I I really didn't think that was going to bear any fruit but thanks anyway Kurgan um, okay just saying has uh, thrown in five dollars and says what is more important in building a successful society race or religion. I think we've talked about that already, but maybe you can add a few more yes, comments. Guess what? What do you think? <laughs> Obviously. First of all, race is an illusion. It's a category of the mind that gets imposed on things that has religion. Answer religion. Okay. Next question. Yeah. Uh, Philip Cunningham, $10 says, uh, did the Catholic Church see the fascist powers as a bulwark against liberalism and communism? Yes. <laughs> that was worth yes, ten bucks I, to you, Philip. Quadragesimo <laughs> anno. Uh, 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 let, let's put it this way: nah, nah, th I'm going to get in trouble because I said that. Let's We're past the hour. Yeah. What What do you mean by fascist powers? We got three three options here. You have Nazi Germany. Okay, that was not Christian. Okay, but Graf von Galen saw them as a bulwark against uh, Jewish Bolshevism, so they saw positive aspects there. Mm -hmm. wanted to try and have a modus vivendi, it didn't work out. You have uh, fascists in Italy, uh, Mussolini, uh, corporatism, trying to s do something along the lines of Quadragesimo Anno. I think Fanfani's book shows that there was a, a common groping towards some type of common understanding of the new economics at that point. And then you have uh, Spain, which was perfectly congruent with uh, the Catholic Church. So it depends on which, and then you have Croatia, and then you have mm -hmm. Stepinats, uh, Cardinal Stepinats and the Ustasha, and how did he deal with that? He, you know, the, it's, it depends on who you're talking about. So as, as Jordan B. Peterson might put it, it depends on what you mean by fascism. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. exactly it. And of course, you know, um, we live in a, such a hysterical, um, politically correct world now that if you say anything positive from any perspective about fascism, then you're literally Hitler. So, yeah, out. No, it's ridiculous. Mm. We, we have to break these taboos and talk uh, uh, honestly about these issues. Absolutely. Well, I yeah, I appreciate how much you've uh, been leading the way in that in that regard, Dr. Jones. 
Um, we have one final super chat from Eyes of the Wolf 101 through in $20. Thank you. Very generous. Says, um, that umbrella guy, a YouTuber, was kicked off Twitter for reporting pedos. Considering that James and E. Michael Jones criticize degeneracy and sexual liberation, this will make more people sympathetic to your message. I'm not sure actually what he means by this, <laughs> but, um, there's no question I'm not sure in there. Who the umbra- the umbra- who's the umbrella guy? I have no idea. But it seems to me that uh, Eyes of the Wolf would like me to look into that, so I'm going to open that in a new tab and check it out later on. And uh, I'll uh, I'll get back to you on that, Eyes of the Wolf. And um, that that concludes our super chat. So um, nice tight little um, session there, and um, we're we're only four minutes over the hour, so I don't think you've put your foot in it fully yet. Dr. No, Jones. I haven't said anything uh, ridiculous yet, so I better get out of here while the getting's good. All right. Well, it's been a, a real pleasure meeting you and speaking to you today. My pleasure. All right, and I hope we can do it again. We're gonna. I'd love to have that chat about architecture, starting from the Taj Mahal and working our way back to Rome. Yes, I'd love to do it. Excellent. All right. Well, God bless. Have a great day. And thanks, everyone, for watching this 143rd episode of The James Fox Higgins Show. That's it for me for the week. So I will see you all again on Monday at the usual time. God bless. Take care. Stay at home and uh, stay clean. Bye-bye. 